this passage tonight, this is, uh, just, a, just going to put this out there. This is a, a difficult passage. I don't know, uh, I, I can't even recall how many times I've been in a church where this passage has been preached. Uh, maybe parts of it, maybe the first part and the last part. But the middle part, uh, not so often because it has to do with politics and it has to do with slavery um, or work, as we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, it's, a, it's a challenging, challenging, challenging passage. And I think that it's important for us to, to kind of come into it humbly, to open up, to recognize, and to allow God to speak and to move through his word tonight as we discuss it. Uh, I want to say a few things. So if you've been with us, we've been going through this series uh, called Who, you, Who Are You? or uh, through the book of First Peter. And, and this section in the letter, Peter is pivoting. And that's important to recognize. So you're going to see that when we jump into uh, verse 11. But he's been talking about uh, the, the grace that has been given to you. He's been talking about the gospel. He's really been talking about your promised inheritance as a Christian. If you believe, you've been promised this unfading, imperishable inheritance that's given to you. And he's telling you, as we talked about last week, that for your conduct to change, for your life to look different, for you to live for righteousness, for you to seek to be good, whatever you want to fill in the blank, you have to not only know the facts of your faith, but you have to feel them. You have to allow yourself to open up and to feel, as he says last week, to taste that the Lord is good. And this is really, really important. And the reason I'm saying this is because if you don't get our emails, you don't get our, we have a worship primer email that goes out every Saturday that the the purpose of it is to help prepare you for this night. If you don't receive that, um, then sign up for our emails when the offering basket comes by later so you can receive that because one of the things we talked about this week is helping you to think about and to process and encouraging you to set aside time to actually feel and to taste and to experience the goodness of God instead of just cramming information in our heads, which is normally what we like to do. So I tell you that because Peter is assuming that every single one of us, as we're reading the audience, that we're working at that. That we're working at really not just knowing the facts of our faith, but feeling the facts of our faith. Tasting God's goodness. Experiencing who he is. And because that is the motivation, the backbone by which your life is going to change. And he's pivoting in the letter now to say, now that you're doing that, let me dive into some specifics. So here's what he says. Look at verse 11. If you have your phone or a Bible or a friend. Here's what it says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he's talked about this a lot already, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's, he's talked about this earlier in the letter. He says that you have to identify as an alien, as a sojourner, as an, as a, as an exile, which is to say that as a Christian, if you're here in this room and you're a Christian, you claim faith, you're called to identify as an alien, meaning this is not your permanent home. This is not all there is. This is not all that matters. And because your ultimate home, the inheritance that you're supposed to open up and feel and imagine and dream about, um, because that's supposed to be motivating you, it should cause you, as he says here, to not indulge in the passions of the flesh. Which is to say, very simply, if you believe that this world is all there is, Life is short, live it up. You just gotta live your life, you gotta take every moment, you gotta take every day, you gotta take every opportunity. If that's your mentality, that this life is all there is, then what are you inevitably gonna do? You're gonna try to squeeze every little 
ounce out of this life because you got to enjoy it now. You have to have fun now. Life is about happiness. It's about comfort. It's about security. It's about doing what you want to do. And Peter is saying, in order for you to begin to transition and to move into the way that God has called you to live, you have to make sure you're identifying as an alien, as somebody that is here for a purpose, and yes, you're here to enjoy this life. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's not like you can't enjoy the life. You should enjoy your work and your relationships and your friends and your church and going out and good food, all those things. Enjoy those things, but don't allow yourself to assume that this life is all there is, because if you do, you're not going to abstain from indulging in the passions of the flesh. Think about some of the things that uh, Christians uh, struggle with, right? So for instance, statistically, it's really sad, but statistically, um, very, very few, I think it's like less than 10% of Christians believe or at least live in such a way as having sex before marriage is a no-go, right? It's like nine out of 10 people have sex before marriage, whether they're a Christian or not. It's, it's, it's a very, very high statistic. So it, it, what happens for us as Christians is we don't say, if you're reading God's word and you're studying it, you know, maybe you, maybe you were engaged in that lifestyle before you became a Christian, and then God washes you clean of that, and that's beautiful, and that's a beautiful story. But so many Christians that are of faith and are, and are seeking God, they see very clearly what it says, right? In scripture, they see the command. They, they see that God is not some kind of like tyrant, like don't have fun, don't enjoy your life, but actually in a committed relationship is where you should actually be vulnerable. Um, in that covenant partnership of marriage is where sex can really blossom and be something beautiful. We don't have a problem with like, we don't debate whether or not it's in the Bible. We say, I just don't really know if that's realistic. Um, Plus, it makes relationships better, it's fun, I enjoy it, and you know what? Like, if I'm going to squeeze out everything I can in this life and in this relationship, I need to, we need to make sure we're compatible, that's going to take our relationship to the next level. So we use that mentality, right? It's not because we have an issue, we're debating whether or not the text says it, it's because ah, this life and this relationship is really what matters more than anything. Why do we make unethical business decisions? Why do we lie in our business uh, in order to advance our career? Because we think, man, my work is so important and I need to receive recognition. I need to be promoted. I want a bump in my salary because if I get those things, then I'll be able to buy fill in the blank. I'll be able to live this life because this life, we live in such a way as it's all there is. This, this one hits home for me because this is a, a challenge for me. Why do, why do I, and maybe many of you, I think this is true many of you, why do we have an obsession with traveling? Because we want to take in and to squeeze out every opportunity and create every experience and every memory so that life has meaning and it has purpose and we have all those things we can always rest in so we imagine if we actually get to where we're really old, we're like, man, I had such a great life. I went all over the world and I did all these things and I ate this weird stuff. You know what I mean? Like we, we just want, and it's nothing wrong with traveling, right? Nothing wrong with working hard at your job and promotion. There's nothing wrong with a good relationship and getting married and sex is a great gift. All these things. But think about our mentality in every single thing that we struggle with. Every single sin, every single thing that we battle with is because we say, oh man, I don't really know if that's like a good idea to abstain from that because it's so fun and it's enjoyable and I'm young and I, I got one life to live and I got to really live it. And Peter is saying, listen, as a Christian, 
Uh, as someone of faith, seeking after God, working at your mentality, you have to identify as an alien because when you identify as an alien, you'll actually have the ability to seek to abstain from those things. And it's not like your life is boring. It's not like, oh man, I just can't do anything. You know, I'm a Christian. Yeah. Um, it's not that, right? It's that abstaining from things and, and have in, enjoying things in the right context. And he says something very interesting, which I'm very thankful uh, for because I'm a very messed up person. I make mistakes all the time. I don't know if you identify. He says, you abstain from the passions of the flesh which are waging war against your soul. That's important. Because what he's saying is, it's not easy. It's not like we can just like talk about this in church and you're going to be like, okay, I just got to work at these things. And you're going to go out and your week's going to be great and you're not going to make any mistakes. And you just, you're just, every single time you identify, yeah, I shouldn't do that. You're never going to do it. No, no, no. It is a battle, right? It is a battle waging war against your soul, which means we can't be passive in it. That's why he's calling you and calling me to think about how we identify how we live our life. What is the thing that motivates and drives us? Do we really believe that this is not all there is? There's a slogan that um, really frustrates me. You'll realize that I have a lot of weird pet peeves. This is one of them. There's a slogan that says, uh, let go and let God. Maybe you have that on your, like, you know, like a postcard or a sticker. Please, I hope not. Um, I, I don't like that uh, slogan because I don't think it's true. <laughs> Um, the idea of like letting go and letting God is like a completely passive approach to life, right? Where Peter here says, there's a battle raging in your soul. So really, I think when you look at scripture, the slogan should read something, don't, please don't take this slogan, but the slogan should read something like, seek God and battle on, right? It's like, seek who God is, and then as you see throughout scripture, crucify the flesh, abstain from passions of the flesh that are waging war against your soul, seek to carry your cross. It's not just like, well, I'm just gonna do nothing. Hopefully God does something. Um, It's a battle, right? You seek God and then you battle and you work at it. And that's important. There's a, the cover quote on here. uh, I love Eugene Peterson as a pastor and uh, I really respect him. He says this, we care more for our possessions with which we hope to make our way in the world than with our thoughts and our dreams, which tell us who we are in the world. He's picking up on this, right? We care so much about the things that we have because that's where we find our identity. It's where we find purpose and meaning in life. Instead of our thoughts and our dreams and the things that we contemplate of who God says we are and what we're promised, because that is actually how we're supposed to make our way in the world, is through those things, not through the tangible possessions. And see, this is uh, important because it works to the next verse where he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Here's the whole thing. So that when, you spe- when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying that you need to be mindful about the way you live, about the way you think that motivates how you live, because the goal of your life is not you. Your, the goal of my life, your life, all of our lives, if you're here and you, and you believe in Jesus Christ and the gospel, your life is not your own. It's about glorifying God. And so you seek to analyze and to work at and to think about your life and what you believe in and what you focus on because you hope that when people will come to you, they would say, what is that thing? that's motivating and driving and fueling them and they would come to glorify God. 
So you don't seek to be good so that people will be like, man, Carrie's such a good guy. That's actually the wrong motivation, which is what we're tempted by, right? The motivation is, man, what is different about him? And that when they come to see you and, and relate with you, they say, it's, it's the God that he believes in. That is what is changing and motivating him. And he gives two instances here, and this is where it gets really difficult. This is, we're going to get really real. We're going to get honest. So put on your uh, honesty hats. I don't know if that's a thing. I just made that up. Um, we're going to talk about, first, politics. Yay. Um, because it's in, it's in the text, so we're going to deal with it. Here's what it says. Uh, verse 13, read along with me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or the king as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free people who are free. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. We have to take this slow because this is a very radical concept that Peter says here. I'm going to be very honest. This is radically ignored by the majority of Christians. (laughs) And I, I think many of us may identify with the fact that we maybe have never read this passage or we ignore this passage because it's difficult. So let's unpack it. He says, be subject, very beginning, verse 13. That word is to submit. So submit to every human institution, whether governors or king. So a few things, we have to break that down. So first thing is, does submit mean to completely agree with every human institution that rules over you? No. Does submit mean that you have to obey? Yes. Does submit mean that you should show honor and respect? Yes, he says that, right? Honor everyone. Honor the emperor. Does submit mean that you have to honor and obey, not honor, but you have to obey unquestionably? No. Because he says there, notice what he says, be subject or submit, why? For the Lord's sake to every human institution. He's saying as a Christian, you are to submit, to obey, to honor, to respect, and other passages of scripture would actually command you to pray for those who rule over you in the federal and local level, regardless of your style of government. Emperor, king, governor, those that rule over you, you're to honor, to respect, and to obey them, but you do it for the Lord's sake. Meaning that if there is a moment in time where they command, those that rule over you, command you to do something that infringes upon God's will, it infringes upon the lordship of Christ in your life, then you don't obey. For instance, if the President of the United States told us and came to you or came to me and said, you need to murder this person, I would not obey, right? Because God's will and God's law, his word to me says, that's not something that I should do. If I am commanded or compelled to worship the president as a god, I would not do that because there is one God that I worship and praise. You said example in the Old Testament, right, with, with Daniel. So that's important, right? So it's not an unquestionably obey. It's not that you obey no matter what, whatever they say, you do it. But 
you obey in every instance unless they are the government or the, the leadership, the, you know, those in political power over you, ruling over you, are infringing upon the lordship of Christ by what they're commanding you to do. If they're infringing upon God's law and his word, that's the only time, and it's a really fine balance, right? Really fine balance. Because it can be very easy for us to justify disrespect, dishonor, lack of obedience for those that rule over us because we don't agree with their political persuasion. We don't think they're a good ruler. We don't think that they have our best interests in mind. Maybe we don't think they have the best interests of the church in mind. So our mechanism is to say, well, for the Lord's sake, there's no way it's God's will that this person would be in power. There's no way that it's God's will that this person deserves honor and respect and obedience. And Peter is saying, actually, they do. Honor the emperor. He doesn't give any qualifications. And this is so important because Peter is talking to an audience of people where he says, submit to the emperor, honor and respect the emperor. The emperor at this time is Nero. Nero killed his own mother. Nero was hunting down and executing Christians. He would take Christians He would tie them up, he would put them on a wooden beam, he would plant them around his backyard, and he would light them on fire to be uh, lights and lamps for his parties. This is their emperor, (laughs) Nero. And Peter comes to them and says, you know the guy that killed your brother, that has tried to kill you, that is hunting you down, that you saw him round up a group of people and light them on fire as lamps for the party, that he threw, that guy, honor him, respect him, submit to him. (laughs) It makes what our situation look like uh, very, very easy, right? This is really, really important for us to to take in because what's happened culturally um, for the church is we've been identified in such a way politically that we are never intended and God never intended nor commanded for us to identify. So I I did a little study. I googled evangelical Christian politics. Just like put those things in there. Started reading articles. So here are the words that they said. You could probably imagine. Right-wing, judgmental, gun-loving, anti-poor, anti-women, war-loving, homophobic. Those are like the majority of the words that came up when I Googled. I just Googled Christian evangelical politics. And those words were repeated over and over and over again. See, this is important because as an individual, you have all the freedom in the world to have a persuasion politically. Right? We're not mindless. You have every, you have, we have so many freedoms living in this country. You have the freedom to debate. You have the freedom to opinion. You have the freedom to vote. You have the freedom to be sad when the person that you think should be elected is not elected. You have the freedom to think that this person is the best person for our country or this person should not be elected because they would not be good for our country. You are free to think those things. But Peter is saying you're also free from the anxiety and the fear of if it doesn't go your way the way that you think it should go. 
So you're free as an individual to be a Republican, to be a Democrat, to be independent, or to create another label that you want to create. You can be whatever you want, and you can vote how you want through your Christian conscience, and you can have opinions, and you can debate. But Peter is saying you need to be very careful about your conversations, your Facebook posts, the way that you act politically, because you're supposed to act in such a way as when people look at you, Yes, they know that you have a mind and you have thoughts and you have opinions. Those things are great. But you're respectful. You're honorable to those in power or those that are getting elected. And that when and whoever rules that you obey and you submit as long as they don't infringe upon God's call and God's law in your life. See, that is much more difficult because you're like, Carter, Carter, Carter. I hear you, I got it, but there's no way that God would want this person to be president. There's no way that God would allow this, I mean, Carter, they're gonna like take away religious liberty, they're gonna, and, and to which I would say, it's okay if, you, if you're, a, you know, you don't want somebody, but Nero, <laughs> Nero was the emperor, and Peter says, respect and honor and obey. Because see, here's the deal, we all have the, the freedom to have our political persuasions as individuals, but as a church, we are not Republican. We are not full of Democrats. We are not independents. We are totally different because the church, we are Christians. That's who we are. We don't have, you know, we have a, a diverse set of people with different persuasions, but we should be a group of people that believe that this is not all there is, and there's a kingdom that's more important than this one, and so what happens here is not going to affect us in such a way that we're so devastated that we think that everything's gonna crumble down in our life because there's actually an inheritance that's promised to us because we're identifying as aliens and a true king who is a true judge and he's just, where everything is promised and secure and beautiful. So we don't have to be full of anxiety and fear. We don't have to act like everybody else and bash and tear down and destroy and seek to make the other side look like they're a bunch of idiots because guess what? We are, we're called to honor, we're called to respect, we're called to obey. We can have opinions, but respectful opinions. And that is a challenge, um, especially in our cultural climate right now. I'm, maybe you feel that, right? <laughs> it's difficult. But if we don't identify as if this world is all there is, and this country, and this kingdom is all that there is, then it takes away that fear and that anxiety. It can free you up to actually pray for them, respect, and eventually obey whoever is elected and whoever rules. And then he transitions to maybe something that's even more difficult, uh, because it takes it like smaller into your everyday life, and that's work. And you may be like, how does it work? Well, look what it says. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only for the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So he uses the example in talking about work of a master-slave relationship. And this is a hard passage for a lot of people. For me, as I was kind of coming to faith and working through that in my life, these, this was one of the issues that was really hard for me to swallow because I'm like, okay, why is he talking about it and not saying that this is like an evil institution? 
why is the New Testament not saying that, hey, like, we're not even going to talk about, like, master-slave mentality because there shouldn't be that. We know that, right? We agree with that. This is a hor—it's a horrible institution. Well, there's a few things we have to understand. The first is um, slavery in the ancient world is not the same as the slavery that we have experienced in American history, which is to say ancient slavery during this time, Greco-Roman, was not race-based. So it had nothing to do with the color of your skin. It, it was actually a foundational aspect of the economy. It's how the economy functioned. So you had master-slave relationships. You had uh, people that were kind of brought into slavery through different means. One was they were kidnapped. Um, they were maybe taken over by, through war and taken through war. They were born into it or they sold themselves into it. Some people would sell themselves into slavery for employment. Uh, to make money. And what's interesting about slavery in the Greco-Roman world is that slaves could be doctors, they could be musicians, they could be managers, they could be artists. Oftentimes, slaves were actually better educated than their masters because the master, in the economic understanding, he wants those that he is in charge of to continue to develop their craft and their skill because it means more money, better music, better art, better healthcare, all those things. So it was very, very different, but it doesn't make it right. That's important. (laughs) It was different, but it doesn't make it right. So when you look at this, you're asking, why in the heck does does Peter just treat this like so nonchalant? Because Carter, I understand that it's different, but it's still not okay, to which we would all agree with. It's okay. Yes, some slaves could buy their independence, which is true, but they were often mistreated they were often beaten. You could have a good master who was great and kind like a boss or you, you know, a good and nice boss or you could have a tyrant. So why aren't they dealing with that? Why are they just talking about the relationship? And that's important to, to wrestle on because the, the authors of the New Testament, and you can take this and you can think about this in other ways too, the authors of the New Testament do not view, view themselves as social revolutionaries. They do not think that the talking against human institutions and changing them will actually change culture. If you notice in the New Testament, the focus is always on two things in the, in the letters after the Gospels, right? And, and even as Jesus speaks, it's focusing on two things, your relationship to God and then in turn your relationship to other people. Every single time that is what it's talking about. And so the authors are saying, listen, they never commend slavery. They never say it's okay ever in the New Testament. So the focus for the writers and the authors of New Testament is we should instead look at and and desire for people's relationship to be reconciled to God and then them to be changed in the way that they love and care for other people. And what we've seen in history is that it's actually worked and it's overthrown institutions like slavery. Christianity was a leading influence in the overthrow of slavery. Because people have been changed. They've been reconciled to God. They've understand human dignity. They've understand how you should treat and love and care for people. And they're like, this is not okay. But it's also to not say that uh, our Christian history is without blemish. Obviously, there are many blemishes in Christian history, which is expected. Because, as Peter says earlier in this passage, there's a battle raging inside of us. We are messed up people. <laughs> and we make a lot of mistakes. And that's the beauty of God's grace. And so he says here in, ter- in regards to um, those that rule over you, because this is the economy of the day, those that rule over you, 
whether they are just or unjust, whether they treat you fairly or they don't, you show them honor and you show them respect. And that's hard because that means a lot of changes in our lives, right? That means maybe you shouldn't go to the break room and gossip about your boss. It means maybe you shouldn't go out to lunch with the coworkers and talk about other people in the company. It means maybe that you should continue to work hard and to strive to be the best that you can be at your job even though you feel that you're constantly overlooked. And, and the person that got the promotion that you think you deserve, that actually maybe you should congratulate them instead of being like, ah, you know, I'm gonna go talk to these people. Ah, I'm way better than this person. Maybe it means that you should take all the ridicule and the slander and the abuse that you get from those that rule over you because you've been called to respect and to honor whether they are treated, they treat you with justice or whether they mistreat you because the goal and the calling of the Christian life, he says here, is that you endure and that by enduring and by being different than everybody else, politically, in your job, by being different, people are gonna notice God because it's the only thing that makes sense of why you would act like that. It's the only thing that makes sense. And that's a hard thing to swallow and I'm so thankful that he ends the passage with verse 21 and following. He says, this is the encouragement to us as Christians. For you've been called, for this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He's saying our call is to suffer. It doesn't mean that we seek it out. We're not weird. But the Christian life is full of suffering. And the call of the Christian is to deal with suffering differently. To to handle it differently. We endure and we show respect and honor even when we're mistreated because we're different. Like Christ was different. He says, and he continues on, he says, Christ committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. So for us, we're, never, we're not gonna stop sinning. We know that. We're, we're gonna continually battle the battle in our soul. But we should be seeking to think about, man, do I use deceit to cover up? Do I lie to get ahead in my job? which were to be different. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So when people revile us and they put us down and they ridicule us, we do not return. We act different. It says when he suffered, he did not threaten. When we suffer, we don't threaten other people because that's what you want to do. When you suffer, you want to threaten other people because you think that it will remove the suffering you endure, he says. And this is why, he says, look what, look what Christ held on to because he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, which is to say the the, the mentality of Christ was that there is a true and good judge. There is something better and different and it's out there and he understood and he held on to that and he entrusted himself to that. So he was able to endure suffering. He was able to respect and to honor and to not slander or to be like, hey, why are you crucifying me? I haven't done anything. He, was in, he endured it. He took it. He did not threaten. He did not lie. He did not use deceit. He endured it. And he's saying to us, in your life and in the examples of politics and the examples of work, when you feel mistreated, when you feel disrespected, when you feel like you're suffering, when you feel like a candidate is going to get elected that you think is totally not good, that you show honor and respect and you submit and you endure and you act different. Because by acting different, he says that you would put to silence those foolish people that want to paint you like everybody else. Want to say, oh yeah, yeah, you're a Christian, you go to church, that's nice for you, but you're just like everybody else. 
say, no, 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 you want to put the silence, and the word is actually muzzle. <laughs> you would muzzle people that would say, there's no difference in you. And Peter is saying, there should be. There should be a difference. And so the challenge for us, and the challenge for myself, and I've been chewing on this all week and kind of analyzing my life, is all of these things that I struggle with, whether it's wanting to, to, to kind of puff up my chest and enact revenge on people that I think have, have wronged me, or to try to seek out recognition if I feel like I'm not getting recognition, or to, to disrespect or to dishonor somebody that I don't agree with. Whatever the thing is, it's all based on fear. It's because I'm afraid that this life is all there is. I'm afraid that I need to be esteemed because I need to be happy, I need to be loved because that will make me, my life better. It's fear of all different levels. And, and here, Peter is saying, there was no fear for Christ because he entrusted himself to the Savior, to the true king, to the true judge, and he was allowed himself to imagine and to understand that there is a better home. There is a better place, and this is not all there is. So you can be different. That's the challenge for us, is to be different in those areas of our life. And it's a challenge, but it's what we're called to. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you were different, (laughs) that you were good to us, that you loved us, that you cared for us. God, thank you for showing us the example of what it looks like to, to endure God, you could have so easily said, I'm done with this. I, I haven't done anything. I don't deserve to be humiliated and to be mistreated and to be spit upon and certainly not to be crucified, but you endured for our sake that we might come to see you and to believe in you and to be changed by you. And so God, we pray tonight that we would hold on to that, that we would entrust ourselves to you who is the true and righteous king and judge that we would not continue to believe that this life is all there is and it's all that matters but there's an inheritance that is great and unfading and imperishable and beautiful promise to us that believe may we seek to live for you in that way not to earn your favor but because you've already loved us you've already healed us you have freed us may we live in that freedom It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.